Greetings all and welcome back to the Everyday Hope Podcast. Good to be with you all again. Uh, I have some good news. The President of Canada sent me a message absolving me of all of my sins from last time. So I'm uh, feeling good about that. It's progress anyway. So we're still in Revelation 2, exploring the messages to the seven churches. We've already talked about the message to the church at Ephesus, the church of sound doctrine that had forgotten to love their neighbors. And we talked about how sound doctrine without love is only half the picture. Jesus said we need both. And we talked about the message to the church at Smyrna, the church that endures suffering. And we heard Jesus' encouragement and his great promise that our bad times have meaning because Look, if we hold on to our faith, there is a life for us at the end of the journey. And last time we looked at the message to the church at Pergamum, Pergamum was the church of religious compromise. They held on to the name of Jesus and accepted their neighbors, but forgot that good doctrine still matters. So from these messages, we've learned that it's not enough just to hold on to the rules. We also have to love our neighbors. And it's not enough to just love our neighbors. We also have to hold on to good doctrine. And always remember... No matter what we face, God will walk us through the dark valleys and give our struggles meaning. So today we're going to move down the road again and talk about the message to the church at Thyatira in Revelation 2, 18 to 29. So let's start that journey by reading the message to Thyatira using our seven section framework. Remember, all seven messages here include the same seven sections, although the content of each is unique for that church. So let's read verses 18 to 29 using this framework. Now, verse 18 covers the first four parts, the destination, the command to write, the thus says section, and the description of the speaker, who is Jesus. Verse 18 says, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. A little less scary than the last one, right? And that burnished bronze thing, it's kind of a majestic ring to it. We'll have to unpack that one a bit. Then comes the I know section in verse 19. Jesus says, I know your works, your love, faith, service, and patient endurance. I know that your last works are greater than the first. Now, it sounds like these folks are really trying to follow Jesus, right? Like Pergamum, this all sounds pretty positive. Then comes the arrangement section. And if you thought the one for Pergamum was long, get a load of this one. It runs from verses 20 to 25. Jesus says, but I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet and is teaching and beguiling my servants to practice fornication and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her fornication. Beware, I am throwing her on a bed, and those who commit adultery with her I am throwing into great distress, unless they repent of her doings. And I will strike her children dead." And all the churches will know that I am the one who searches minds and hearts, and I will give to each of you as your works deserve. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, you who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast to what you have until I come. Wow, now that's a lot. We'll definitely need to go through all of that. And then finally, the proclamation in verses 26 to 28. To everyone who conquers and continues to do my works to the end, I will give authority over the nations to rule them with an iron rod as when clay pots are shattered, even as I also received authority from my father. 
To the one who conquers, I will also give the morning star. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Now, the message to the church at Thyatira has some stuff in common with the message to Pergamum, right? They're both dealing with false teachers who have infiltrated the ranks of the church and are leading folks astray. Yet there's a subtle and important difference in these messages that I want to talk about at the end. But before we do that, there's some confusing imagery in this message. And I think that if we can answer four questions, it all might make a little bit more sense, right? Four questions are, first, what's so special about Thyatira as a city? Second, who is Jezebel? Why does she figure so prominently in this message? Third, why is Jesus' description of himself so complicated and what does it all mean? And fourth, what is Jesus trying to tell us in this proclamation with the iron scepter and smashing clay pots and the morning star and all that business? It's a lot to work through. All right, so let's start with Thyatira. Not Thyatira, Mississippi, but Thyatira in Asia Minor, which is now the modern city of Akasar, Turkey. It's a city of just under 200,000 people and is renowned for two things, their good olive oil and the fact that they produce more than 10% of Turkey's tobacco. In ancient times, Thyatira was known for their dyed fabric and was a center of the indigo trade. In Acts 16, Paul encounters a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple fabric from Thyatira who hears Paul's teaching and, and becomes a follower of Jesus. Archaeological evidence shows that Thyatira boasted more guilds than any other contemporary city in Asia Minor. Among the ancient ruins of the city, there are inscriptions relating to the guilds of wool workers, linen workers, garment makers, dyers, leather workers, tanners, potters, bakers, slave dealers, and bronze smiths. Each guild had its own patron deity, and admission to the guild likely required paying homage to that deity, even maybe participating in festivals celebrating that god or goddess. This would have made life difficult for Christians there. Our second question is about Jezebel. Jesus spends most of the arrangement section talking about the Jezebel in the midst of the church there. So who was Jezebel? Well, let me tell you, Jezebel was a bad person. I usually don't put a lot of stock in the whole good person, bad person thing, because technically we're all bad people until Jesus comes along and makes us righteous. But there ought to be a special category for people like her, people who are just absolutely despicable, people who joyfully inflict evil on those around them and who stretch their grammatical limitations of the words human being. Jezebel was definitely one of those. She was a Gentile, the daughter of the king of Sidon. She married one of the most evil and notorious kings of Israel, King Ahab. Ahab was a complete wretch, but many of his sins are laid at the feet of his wife. She's credited with leading Ahab to worship the Baals and other false gods. She's also credited with abetting and fostering many of his most notorious crimes. Her story runs from the end of 1 Kings through the beginning of 2 Kings. And here are just some highlights. In 1 Kings 16, Ahab marries Jezebel, a Gentile, and she immediately leads him into the worship of Baal. In 1 Kings 18, Jezebel goes on the attack as an enemy of Yahweh. She tries to murder all of the prophets of Yahweh in Israel. Obadiah rescues a hundred of them and hides them in two caves, which leads to Elijah's famous showdown with the priests of Baal on Mount Carmel. In 1 Kings 19, following Yahweh's sound defeat of Baal on Mount Carmel, Jezebel swears an oath to see to Elijah's destruction. She makes herself the sworn enemy of Israel's greatest prophet. In 1 Kings 21, we see Ahab as a mopey wretch who just desperately wants to build a garden, but can't because the land he needs is owned by a man named Naboth. 
Naboth has a vineyard on his land, which is his family's inheritance. It's his birthright, right? It's, it's his birthright from Yahweh, so naturally he won't sell it. But in this infamous story, Jezebel has Naboth framed for a crime that not only didn't he commit, it didn't even exist, and has him stoned. And once he's dead, she urges Ahab to just take the land and build his garden. And then in 2 Kings 9, Jezebel finally receives her just desserts. In 1 Kings 21-23, Elijah prophesies, brings a message from Yahweh, and says, And also concerning Jezebel, the Lord says, Dogs will devour Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. Right? So just as the Lord had said through the prophet Elijah, she was actually cast down into the street. And before anyone can take her to a proper burial, her corpse is devoured by the dogs in the street. I don't mean to laugh, but Jezebel. This is the Jezebel that's alluded to in the message to the church of Thyatira, the self-proclaimed enemy of Yahweh who leads his people down the path of destruction. And like with Balaam in the last message, she's used here as a type, right? Standing in for all the people who are doing those things in Thyatira, leading Christians into sin and adultery into moral compromise. Our third question is about the complexity of Jesus' description of himself, right? Now to Ephesus, remember that church that had forgotten to love? He was the one who was in control and who was ever present among the churches. To Smyrna, the suffering church, he was the first and the last who lived and died and rose again from the dead to offer life to all who believe. To Pergamum, the church that had forgotten good doctrine, he was the one with the sharp two-edged sword, the one who threatened to make war on those who abandoned his word with that sword. So who's now speaking to the church in Thyatira? Well, first, Jesus is the son of God. Now, this is something we say in church all the time, but this is not a casual expression here. The city of Thyatira viewed their patron deity and the divine Roman emperor as the givers of life, the very sons of God. To this city, Jesus speaks first and foremost as the true son of God. He leaves no doubt about the claims he makes about his own identity. Second, Jesus has eyes like a flame of fire. This description recalls the vision in Daniel 10.6, where he describes the one who appears to him. It says, I looked up and there before me was a man dressed in linen with a belt of finest gold around his waist. His body was like chrysolite, his face like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleaming of burnished bronze, and his voice like the sound of a multitude. Our human eyes are frail things. The very existence of the phrase optical illusion is proof of that, right? As an example, think of all the roads around the world where cars coast uphill. Confusion Hill in California, Magnetic Hill in Canada, Aricia in Italy. Tourists come from miles around to stop at the bottom of the hill, put their cars in neutral, and then coast up the hill. Right? Well, that's not possible. It's an optical illusion. False visual cues make a slight downhill slope appear to be going uphill. But your eyes are lying to you. When false prophets come to us to deceive us, our eyes can be easily fooled. Yet Jesus is the one with eyes like flaming fire, eyes that burn through the mist of illusion to see the truth. The deceivers cannot penetrate his flaming eyes, and so he sees what truly is. Third, Jesus has feet of burnished bronze. Now, things made of bronze were two things, strong and splendid. There was a regal quality to bronze in the ancient world. It gleamed like gold that had been set on fire, but it was also very strong. It was stronger than other metals. 
1 Kings 7.45 and 1 Chronicles 4.16 describe some of the articles that were made for the temple, and many of them were made of burnished bronze. In Ezekiel 1.7, the prophet describes four living creatures sparkling like burnished bronze. And then in Daniel 10.6, his vision includes that description we read, a vision of the Lord whose arms and legs were of burnished bronze. So in a city where people were being led astray, whose feet were wandering wherever temptation led, our Jesus appears with feet of burnished bronze, which are fit for the Son of God and strong enough to withstand the tide of fashion. Jesus would not be led astray. He would stand fast, and all of his followers could stand fast with him. So to the church at Thyatira, Jesus is the true Son of God, whose eyes will not be deceived and whose feet will not be led astray. With me? Okay, now our last question is about the proclamation, all that iron scepter smashing clay pots and ruling over the nation's business with a, with a morning star thrown into boot. What do we make of all of this? Well, the proclamation to the church of Thyatira points us directly to Psalm 2. I'm going to read Psalm 2 verses 7 to 9, and I want you to listen to see if you can hear this message to Thyatira in it. It says, I will tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. The messianic teaching of the Hebrew people has always included the idea of the coming reign of Messiah and the people's participation in that reign. The message to Thyatira recalls these messianic promises for all who endure. We will be given the Messiah's shepherd staff. We will have authority over the nations and we will rule them with him in the new earth to come, right? But what about the morning star? Well, folks turn to a lot of different passages for help in interpreting this. Some turn to Isaiah fourteen twelve and see a description of Lucifer cast down from heaven. Others think this is a prediction of the downfall of the literal king of Babylon by the Persian king Cyrus, which happens towards the end of the 6th century when it really doesn't have much bearing on Revelation. Some turn to Job 3.9 and 38.7 and try to make a connection from the morning stars singing at the creation of the world. Although, you know, even the rocks will cry out, so stars singing at the creation of the world isn't so strange. I even read The Magician's Nephew for help with this passage, but there really wasn't much there. Given the context of the passage and the messianic allusion to Psalm 2, maybe it's better just to stay in Revelation for an answer. Is there any other place in Revelation where someone is referred to as the morning star? I mean, we've talked about this, right? Once an image is used in the book, it really should maintain the meaning of that image. You can't change the meaning of a symbol in the same book. So within Revelation, that symbol should be consistent. So I think all we need to do is look at Revelation twenty-two sixteen. Jesus says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. In the epilogue to this great letter, where Jesus invites all to participate with him, Jesus proclaims himself as the morning star. So the weight of the proclamation section is significant. Messiah will come. To those who ignore his precepts, the dawning of the rule of Messiah will bring with it the iron scepter, smashing them like clay pots. But to those who endure until his coming, the morning star himself becomes their possession. A second Peter 1.19 tells us, We also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable, and you will do well to pay attention to it, as to a light shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Amen? 
All right, so what does all this mean? I mean, now that we have all the pieces, how do we put them together to, to see the message to this church at Thyatira? Well, just as Pergamum was the church of religious compromise, Thyatira is the church of moral compromise. Thyatira is the church that believes as long as we refuse to make the mistakes of Ephesus and Pergamum, we're good. If we cling to love, faith, service, and patient endurance, it doesn't really matter what else we do. It's not an uncommon theory, especially today. If I had a nickel for every time I was drawn into a conversation with Christians who believe that as long as they have faith, minding the rules wasn't such a big deal, I'd be recording this podcast from my villa on the beach. I can't tell you how many times I've heard the these rules are old and don't apply to us argument for living any way we want. Look, do you know what the word consecrate means? It means to set something apart. Most definitions you find for the English word tend to describe the consequences of consecrating a thing, making it venerable, stuff like that. But the process of holification, making something holy, is a process of setting it apart from profane things, setting it apart for God. All through the Old Testament, we see the people of God try to make themselves like the people around them. But what God really wanted is for them to set themselves apart, to be different, to be his. We can't be holy just by doing whatever we want, whenever we want. We set ourselves apart by choosing that God's will matters more than ours. And this is true. Regular attendance at church and a willingness to call yourself a Christian is not a substitute for living a life that is pleasing to God. It just isn't. And the message to the church at Thyatira proves it. Jesus has asked us to obey his commands and a truly faithful heart will want and strive to do that. Otherwise, we're just, we're Thyatira. And the church that does that will be smashed in the end, like a clay pot under an iron scepter. If we really want to be people who follow Jesus, then we need to follow these messages. We need to love in a way Ephesus was not willing to love. We need to endure suffering just as Smyrna did. We need to reject false teachings to avoid being Pergamum. And we need to reject false living to avoid being Thyatira. So how do we do that? Well, I think it's not that complicated. Maybe hard, but not complicated. So the other day, my wife asked me to get up early in the morning on a work day before I went off to a job I don't love to move a crap ton of horse poo from a trailer to our dumpster before they came to empty the dumpster. It's just what you want to do at 6 a.m. before having to go off to work and feast on the indignity your employer has lined up for that day. I told my friend how my day had started, and he said, well, why didn't you just say no? I blew the question off at first, but then I thought about it. It's pretty simple, really. I love her, and that's what she wanted, so I did it. I even, I don't, I don't know, can I say this, wanted to do it for her because I love her. The fact is, if you love someone, I mean, if you really love someone, you want to serve them, right? So we're back to the two most important things we can do, according to Jesus. Love God enough to obey him and love our neighbors enough to serve them. And so if I really love Jesus, doing the stuff he asks me to do, and maybe more importantly, not doing the stuff he asks me to avoid, isn't that complicated? If we love him, we'll want to. Even the hard stuff. With me? 
All right, I'm going to pray for you right now. And don't forget the rules. God can still hear you if your eyes are open. So be safe and keep your eyes on what you're doing. But let your hearts pray with me. Father, this is a tough message. I mean, these are all tough messages, Lord, but, but we need to hear this. We need to be reminded that you care about how we live and letting the world talk us into compromising your way so we can fit in with them is not what you want. Lord, please give us the wisdom to see the Jezebels around us and the strength to tell them no. Lord, we also pray for our world. It's in some turmoil right now, which I'm sure you know, and I don't have a solution. We're not sure what to do except to keep following your two important commands. So Lord, we pray that you would heal our world and you would help us love both you and our neighbors in the way you want us to. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, thank you all for joining me again. We will be back next time as we start Revelation chapter 3 and the message to the church in Sardis. Peace all.